So every major religion has its sacred spaces, its holy places where one can go and they can meet with God and they can commune with God. So for Muslims, it's Mecca. For the Jews, it's the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Uh, Buddhists look to Sensoji Temple in Tokyo. Many of them do at least. Hindus might look to Varanasi. Catholics would look to perhaps St. Peter's Basilica there in Vatican City. But if you're a Protestant, you're kind of a duck out of luck, aren't you? I mean, Protestants traditionally haven't had sacred spaces or holy places. Now, yes, if you're in London, maybe you'll go and visit Westminster Chapel, where the famous Martin Lloyd-Jones preached and pastored. Or maybe you'll visit the jail where John Bunyan was imprisoned. Or maybe you'll go to Broad Street in Oxford, where the Oxford martyrs were burned at the stake. Right? You had Latimer, Ridley, and Cranmer. And yes, maybe I drug Aaron to all of those sites on our first anniversary trip overseas. And I know what you're all thinking, Brad, you are such a romantic. She certainly wasn't thinking that. It's amazing she's still married to me. At any rate, the point being, none of those, as fun places they are to visit, they're not really considered sacred spaces or holy places, not in the traditional sense. You know, maybe for Protestants, the closest thing is the Holy Land. If you're a Baptist, maybe you're going to the Jordan River to get baptized again, but don't get me started on that one. But friends, why is that? Why no sacred spaces? Why no holy places? It would seem in this regard that Protestantism is, is even deficient in some way. If there's no sacred spaces and no holy places, where does one go to meet with God? Where does one go to commune with God? Well, friends, it's questions like this that bring us back this morning to our study in the Gospel of John. We're going to be in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. John 2, 13 to 25. And if you're using one of the uh, red Bibles provided in the seat back before you, you can find that on page 887. Page 887. Now, last week we saw chapter 2 opened and really marked the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And there was that scene, the famous scene of, of, of the miracle, what John calls a sign, where Jesus really saves the wedding by turning water into wine. And that sign was meant to say something about Jesus. It teaches us something about Jesus, namely that, as we saw last week, he's the bridegroom, the one who purifies his bride for the great wedding feast of heaven. And it's fitting that John would open with that and, and give us something to look forward to. But friends, that begs the question, doesn't it? How does one gain access to that wedding feast of heaven? How can we be sure that we're not going to be left out? Well, that's where we turn to a second of one of Jesus' most famous acts when he cleansed the temple and started flipping tables. I'm sure many of you know the story. Let's pick it up. Let's look at it together. John 2, beginning in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. 
And his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said to him, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. Okay, here again we have one of the most famous and also sometimes one of the most misunderstood stories about Jesus. And it's clear all of this has something to do with the temple. For that word temple, or what's also referred to in Jesus' mouth as my father's house, uh, that's referred to seven times in our passage. And the Jewish people, well, they were very proud of the temple. It was at the heart of their national and religious identity. It stood as a physical monument, kind of living proof that the Jews were in right relationship with God. And yet Jesus here challenges that very assumption. He takes it head on with one of the most bold and confrontational moments in his entire public ministry. He obliterates those who looked to the temple and presumed upon their relationship with God. And what he does is seek to take their eyes off a building and put it on to a body, namely his body. And I think here's John's point. Jesus is the true temple where God delivers us and dwells with us. So if you're looking for a summary of these verses, it's right there. Jesus is the true temple where God delivers us and dwells with us. And so from that, just want to draw those two natural conclusions, which will serve as our two points. First, God delivers us through Christ's sacrifice and not our service. That's the first thing I want us to think about. Christ, or I should say God delivers us through Christ's sacrifice. So God delivers us through Christ's sacrifice, not our service, first. Second, God dwells with us in a person and not a place. So first, God delivers us through Christ's sacrifice and not our service. So the scene opens, and where do we find ourselves but at the Passover of the Jews? So this would have been the most significant sort of festival in all of Jewish life. The Passover, going all the way back to Exodus 12, was that meal that marked out the people of God. It was that great monument to the moment when they were transformed from an oppressed tribal people and they became a glorious nation known as Israel. The first time they're referred to as the congregation of Israel is right there in Exodus chapter 12. And it celebrated their great deliverance from God. Well, really deliverance from Egypt, but also the holiness of God. But really deliverance from Egypt as God, if you remember, he passed over the houses that had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, only struck down the firstborn of Egypt. 
right? So it commemorated that great deliverance. And every adult male who was really within a day's walking distance, about 15 or 20 miles or so of Jerusalem, was required to be at the Passover festival. But not just them. People traveled from really all over the Roman Empire. Jews did in the diaspora. They could have, they could have been somewhere north. They could have been south, wherever they were. Many made the long journey to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And their, the city would literally just be bursting at the seams. It was that hundreds of thousands of people would swell upon Jerusalem. Now, John actually records three different Passover feasts in his gospel. There's one here in chapter 2. There's another in chapter 6, verse 4. There's another in chapter 11, verse 55. And friends, that's actually one of the ways we know that Jesus' ministry took place over three years. Because we have, in his public ministry, three distinct Passovers that he seemed to attend. And when you arrived at the Passover, the expectation was that you had to pay the temple tax of half a shekel, and that was prescribed there in Exodus, and then you had to offer a sacrifice, right? A bull or a goat, an oxen, perhaps a pigeon if you were poor. And this time was meant to be a a time of reverent reflection. This was meant to be a time of humble petition. This was meant to be a time of holy appreciation for God's great act of deliverance. Only when Jesus arrives, it looks a whole lot more like the floor of the New York Stock Exchange than it does like a corporate prayer service. And so it's full of chaos and commotion. There are people clamoring over one another. They're yelling and gesturing. You've got cattle bellowing. You've got sheep bleeding. You've got doves are cooing. You've got men haggling. And then there are, of course, in verse 14, the money changers who were all too happy to exchange your currency with the official temple currency. People coming from all over the the empire would have different currencies. And again, they would happily do the currency exchange for a small commission of 12 to 12.5%. So just imagine if your broker took 12 or 12.5% every time you made a trade, or your realtor did that, right? Someone is profiting off the Passover. There are people lining their pockets here during the Passover. And at this, Jesus is enraged. And so notice what he does. He doesn't go and make a formal complaint to the temple police. It's not, he could, I guess he could have done that. He doesn't do that. He doesn't write a letter to the editor and call for some new legislative action to deal with the issue. He doesn't even stage a protest outside the temple gates with his disciples. No, the first thing he does in a very premeditated act, verse 15, is he makes a whip of cords. He gathers some long leather strips, carefully weaves them together in a whip. We don't know how long it took. Probably didn't take days, but it probably took more than just a few minutes. And then with that whip, the guy goes all Indiana Jones there in the temple, doesn't he? The word drove there in verse 15 is in he drove them all out of the temple. That word drove conveys force. Jesus isn't gently pleading, right? He is raising his voice. He is cracking the whip. And like a boss, he is driving all of them out of the temple. Now, the money changers were likely watching some of this in shock. And maybe some were watching in amusement as, you know, cattle were tripping over one another and all the rest. But no sooner does 
he come back, and he comes back, Jesus says, for the money changers. He comes back for them. Right now, tables are crashing. Now, coins are flying, and people are scattering every which way. And given the look of horror on the faces of the pigeon sellers, right, these guys, they've watched it, and they're like, they're already half-packed, they're out. Jesus just has to say, get out of here, and these guys are gone. Friends, Jesus is angry. There is no gentle and lowly Jesus on this day. There is no meek and mild Jesus on this day. This is kind of like Bruce Banner Jesus, right? Like Hulk Jesus. Heart pounding, right? Sweat streaming, arms flexed, and fists clenched in righteous wrath over what he has seen. Now, some will conclude here that Jesus just lost control. And so, you know what? We're justified. It's okay if we lose our control sometimes, lose our cool sometimes. You know, we can have our own personal kind of toss the money changers out moment. Well, Jesus will understand. But friends, just notice Jesus, nowhere here does it say he lost his temper. He doesn't fly off the handle, right? The, he's not sending anybody to the hospital. We read nothing of that. Friends, anger often controls us, but it never controlled him. We are often governed by our anger, but he governs his anger. It is a righteous anger. Nowhere do we read that he sins here in his anger. Now others will conclude from this, hey, there's to be no commerce at church. So I loved Chris Shaw's prayer of confession for us. And as deacon of bookstall, some of you might be thinking, yeah, we got to axe that guy. We got to get the bookstall out of here. No money changers in the church. But, you know, a temple tax had to be paid. Currencies had to be exchanged. You know, others downplay it all and they say, oh, Jesus, you know, it's, it's not, this isn't all it may seem to be, right? It's, it's not as forceful, you know, he's not aggressive. He certainly wouldn't be violent with any animals. You know, this would go against perhaps their crunchy, hippie, peace, love, and granola version of Jesus. But friends, there is no escaping. Jesus has Jesus just wrecked a kind of holy havoc on the temple. And why is that? It's because the holy place has been turned into a marketplace. A house of prayer has now become a house of profit. In this part of the temple where all this was taking place likely would have been the outer court. Friends, the outer court was where the Gentiles were permitted. And so the fact that Jesus does this sign, so to speak, performs this act there in the court of the Gentiles in and of itself is a sign of what we're about to read in the next chapter of how God so loved the world, right? He is clearing out the outer court so the Gentiles can come and pray. You know, as it is, the Gentiles are coming in and they've got to like step over manure and they've got to dodge oxen and, and they've got to sort of avoid the, all the money changers, right? It's, it's utter chaos. It's pandemonium. And that's not what God had intended. The Jewish leadership had made a mockery of the temple. And so in holy zeal, Jesus makes an end to it all. That's what's referenced in verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now given what Jesus later says in verse 22, uh, or what, the, what John does rather, I tend to think the disciples only recognized and remembered that verse afterward. I'm guessing it happened after Jesus' death and resurrection. 
I'm not sure anyone in that chaotic moment was saying, hey, you know what? That sounds a lot like Psalm 69.9. I'm guessing that wasn't happening. They were too stunned by what was happening. But it was a quote of King David's from Psalm 69.9. So just as King David was consumed with zeal for God's house, so would David's greater son be consumed for zeal with the house. And just as the reproaches fell upon David for that zeal, so they would fall upon Christ for the zeal. Friends, this is a picture of what Haley read to us earlier from Malachi 3. When the Lord comes to his people, how does he come? He comes as a refiner's fire. He comes in order to purify their worship. Friends, it is right to have a holy zeal for God's house. A kind of holy jealousy for God's house. That's a, that's a right instinct that we ought to have. Friend, I wonder if you have that instinct at all in you. A holy zeal for God's house. I mean, even as I say that, do you even know what that would mean? Like, what, what would that look like? Well, you have to ask yourself, where is God's temple today? And we'll think about this a little bit more in the, in the second point. But according to Paul who just got it himself from Jesus. We know God's temple today, 1 Corinthians 3. He says, verse 16, Paul does, to the church there in Corinth, do you all not know, I'm I'm doing the plural use, right, just so you get it, do you all not know that you all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you all? So Paul understands that it's the gathered people, it's Jesus' local church That's where his temple is found today. It's in this assembly and assemblies like this all over the world. I think a question you've got to ask yourself if you're here this morning, are you even a part of an assembly? Have you united to any assembly? Are there any pastors and elders there who, who would know you and feel some kind of spiritual responsibility and care for you? You know, it starts right there. You can't be passionate and zealous about something you're not even a part of. But members of UBC, does our own corporate witness as a church, does that consume you? Are you consumed with a holy passion and purity for this body? I mean, what would your relationship say? Do you invest in people here and seek to encourage them and and build them up? And do you warn them with necessary because you have a zeal for the purity of Christ's bride, for the honor of his name. When you see members struggling, do you, do you reach out to them? Do you, do you come around them or just assume, ah, oh, someone else might do that? When others in the body are tarnishing the name of Christ, do you, do you pray for them and do you pursue them? And, or do you just say, hey, you know what, that's actually none of my business, right? I'm just going to leave that with someone else, not mine to get a part of, not mine to get involved in. Right? Think about your involvement even on Sundays or in, through the course of the week. I mean, are you invested in the life of this body or are you pretty much just a casual observer? Do you gather with us on Sunday nights as we're about to tonight when we pray for the various needs of the body and the ministries of the body? Do you show up at members meetings when we think about the family business of the body? Do you take seriously who we bring into membership? Do you take seriously who we think we may need to discipline in order to maintain the purity of Christ's body, the witness of the church? 
Or maybe just think about your own heart. Your own attitude, right, when you come through these doors on Sunday. Has corporate worship simply become about ease and convenience? Is that all it boils down to, right? Is it convenient for me? I mean, yes, I know I could invest in discipling relationships, and I know I could build my life around the local church, and I know Brad talks about that from the pulpit on Sundays, but, you know, that would inquire, require me to invest in people more heartily. It would mean I have to be present for things more regularly. It mean I would need to share the gospel more fervently. It mean I got to pray for people more diligently. It means I would have to serve them more sacrificially. I mean, yes, I know I could do all that, but that would affect all of my time and my schedule and my plan and my calendar and how I use my house or my apartment, even where I choose to buy a house. Friends, it is so much easier, isn't it, just to show up on Sunday, to have people serve me, to have them lead me, to have them pray for me, and then just walk out these doors and get on with my life. I mean, why buy the ox? Why exchange the currency on the other side of the valley if we could just do it right there in the convenience of the temple court, right? Just take care of it all at once. Why, why, why complicate matters anymore, right? It's easier that way. It's more comfortable that way. So I ask you again, are you consumed for a holy zeal for God's house? Or are you simply happy to go through the motions for 90 minutes or so on a Sunday and then just walk out these doors and get on with your life? Friends, Jesus, though, doesn't want us to miss that he's not merely attacking the corruption of the system. He's actually going at the very system itself. So for all the people who thought that by their service and by their religious duty that they had made themselves right with God, so whether or not that was providing the service of exchanging money, whether or not that was providing bulls and, and doves and, and so forth for sacrifices, whether or not that was the people who offered the sacrifice or those who paid the temple tax or those who had to come around and sweep out the courts after all these people left. All of that service for each one of those people, they assumed that that put them in good standing with God. They assumed that service made them right before God, made them likely even more righteous than the people around them. I mean, after all, they had made the big trek. They had made the pilgrimage. They were there in Jerusalem, right? They had their friends that didn't bother to come. They're feeling good about themselves for being here. They're at church, you would say. And they're there even in the evenings. They're serving in nursery, unlike all those other slouches, right? Those spiritual reprobates, those people. It's a joke, guys. But friends, Braden reminded us earlier, you can be well acquainted with the things of God. You can gather regularly with the people of God. You can give yourself even to the worship of God, but that doesn't assume and that does not itself ensure that you have any real part with God. And that's what we're seeing. Because notice what Jesus calls the temple. He calls it my father's house. He doesn't say it's our house. He's not saying it's a house that he shares with them. He says this is his father's house. And I think he does that in part to create distance because he understands these people have no part with God. 
Because your spiritual service doesn't save you. Only a sacrifice saves. Don't miss where all this is happening, or when it's happening, I should say. It's at the Passover. Friends, that's not an accident. Jesus never wants us to lose sight of who he is and of why he came. And it's not just to be a freedom fighter. It's not just to be some rabble rouser. It's not just a guy who likes to buck the system. He's not just a wise teacher or some courageous and inspiring leader. That's not what we're to draw from our passage. Jesus came because of the Passover. He came to fulfill once and for all God's promise of a spotless lamb. Remember we thought of verse 1 or chapter 1, the lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. He is coming at Passover to fulfill that. So notice what he does. He drives out all of the sacrificial animals and he leaves only himself as the true and final sacrifice. The sacrificial lamb has replaced all of the sacrificial lambs of the old system. And the whip he uses, that whip he uses to drive out those who would pervert the worship of God that same word is used of a whip that we used against him when he became the substitute of God. When he became the sacrifice at his own crucifixion. Friends, God's people have always been saved by sacrifice, not by their own service. But not finally the sacrifice of bulls and goats. And again, certainly not the sacrifices we ourselves make. And so if you've come this morning and you wouldn't identify as a Christian, you know, we like to think that God will accept us one day on the basis of all of our activity. And we know it may not be a lot of activity, but you know, God, God appreciates the effort and it's some activity. So maybe we seek to be kind to others, right? At least, I don't know, most of the time. We show up at church or at least around the holidays or maybe Mother's Day for mom. We pray even fervently, you know, especially we're in the midst of a crisis. Maybe we even support a few good causes when we have a little extra money left in the account. But my friends, here's the bad news. God's not impressed. God's not impressed. He's not looking down on you from heaven and saying, man, wow, you're killing it. It's not what he's saying. He's not celebrating you, and he's not celebrating me in that way. God is perfectly holy. And so only perfectly holy people can dwell with this God. And only perfectly holy people can impress this God. Friends, that's not you and that's not me. Which means the only one that God is truly impressed with is this Jesus. The only one. He alone lived that perfect life before God. Jesus is the only one who has never sinned. He alone then died the death we deserve as a substitute in our place, bearing the wrath of God against sin. And then he alone rose from the grave, victorious over sin and death, so that all who would see themselves as they really are, right, see themselves as sinners, and also see their need for a Savior, and see Christ held out to them, 
all of these who see this Christ and understand themselves can then turn to him in repentance and faith, which just means walking away from our own lives, trying to run them our own way, and placing our faith in Jesus. And these are the ones who can be delivered by this Passover lamb who came to take away the sin of the world. And friend, you can be delivered by entrusting yourself to this very same Jesus we see here in John 2. It's not your righteousness. It's not your religious activity. It is only Jesus' righteousness and what he has accomplished that will make you one day right before God. But you know, Christians here too, we can slip into the error of thinking we're good simply because we've got the right religious system, right? It, we might think we're good because we are, are more reformed as Christians, and of course that's really what the Bible teaches, or we're more well-educated, or we're more well-behaved, or we think of ourselves as more moral than those other Christians, right? The Jews have put their hope, really their identity, in the temple, and so often we put our own identities and whether or not it's we have the right politics or whether or not we have the right family values or even whether or not we have the right ecclesiology. But at the end of the day, we're saved by sacrifice. And as Jesus will make clear in verse 20, his death and resurrection, that would be the ultimate temple cleansing. So I don't know if I noted, there are about six different signs, it seems, in this first half of Mark, which kind of begs the question, where's the seventh? Seventh is often a biblical number of completion. It's Jesus' death and resurrection. That's sort of the unstated but clear seventh sign in the book of John. You see, Jesus isn't just calling for the end of corrupt religion. He's calling for the end of all religion, period. Religion that rests in our service and our duty and not his sacrifice. It's what the entire temple system was always meant to point to. It itself was a sign that pointed to Jesus. Which brings us to our second point. Second, God dwells with us in a person, not a place. God dwells with us in a person, not a place. Because after Jesus wrecks this kind of holy havoc on the temple, notice what happens. What do they do to Jesus? Well, he's not bound up and taken to the Roman authorities. We might have expected that. He's not arrested or kicked out. He's not even charged with anything. Instead, look there, verse 18. Notice what they do. John says that the Jews, which is often a shorthand way, that John, who was himself a Jew, would often refer to the Jewish authorities, right? So the Jews are the Jewish authorities, right? They what? In verse 18, they question him. They say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, notice what they're saying. They're saying basically, hey, Jesus, what are your credentials, right? Show us your badge. Who on earth do you think you are to be driving everyone out of the temple like this, disrupting the whole system, it's clear they knew he was somebody because we're not told a single person in here tries to ever stop Jesus. It's as if there's an inherent authority to what Jesus is doing, an inherent authority where they back off and figure out, like, this guy's somebody, but we don't know who he is. So we got to find out on what authority he says he can do this stuff. 
and they demand a sign. But of course, the irony is that he just performed the sign. The irony is that what he had just done to cleanse the temple was itself the sign. It was the sign that he was the Messiah, David's greater son. But they were blind to that. They missed that. They didn't see it. It was flashing and bright neon, right? But they just didn't have eyes to see. And you know what's interesting? We're not even told for a moment, not even for a passing second, are we told that they ever stopped to consider whether or not Jesus' actions were just. They never pondered whether his actions were right and driving everybody out. There's no self-reflection. There's no internal examination. There's only accusation. Who do you think you are to challenge us? Friend, do you see yourself at all in these Jewish leaders? When confronted by your sin, do you ever stop to first engage in a little internal examination? Do you ever stop to first engage in some self-reflection? Or do you instinctively respond with accusations? Right? Who are you to say that to me? You know, what makes you so high and mighty that you can now come judge me? I mean, why don't you get the log out of your own eye before you take the speck of sawdust out of mine? Do you have that instinct? Do you know that instinct in your own heart? Friends, sadly, it's all too natural for us, I think. So, you know, the next time someone confronts you, maybe, maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a good friend. Maybe it's one of your parents. Maybe it's a teacher. Maybe it's a coach. Maybe it's a boss. Right? Instead of lawyering up and preparing your defense, why don't you first stop and consider whether there might be any truth to what this person has to say? Right? Don't first open your mouth. Don't go into PR mode, right? So John noted, I think it was two weeks ago in the Heart of the Kings, that, that each of us has a kind of PR department that would dwarf the largest nations in the world, right? And when someone confronts us, that PR department goes into overdrive and it's all about damage control. And we do everything we can to clear our name. And when we can't, what do we do? We try to sully theirs. We try to dirty theirs. Friends, in politics, you got examples on both sides of the aisle this week doing that very thing. That's how the game is played out there. It's not how the game is to be played in here. Not for a Christian. So Christian, shut your PR department down, right? Fire all those workers. Close your mouth. Go away and pray and engage in some self-examination and in some personal reflection. And consider when you are challenged, when you are confronted, whether or not there is any truth. It doesn't matter if they didn't say it in the right way. Yes, we should say things in a gracious and loving and clear way. But that won't always happen. But it doesn't give you a reason to excuse it. Doesn't matter if they don't have all the facts right. Do they have some of the facts right? Do we need to listen to some of that? Is there truth in it? And if so, will you own it and what will you do about it? Sadly, the Jewish leaders do none of this. And Jesus seems to know this, right? He seems to understand it because notice at the close of the passage, we read that, they, that many saw the signs, but look there, verse 24 Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew 
what was in a man. In other words, Jesus could see straight through this question of the Pharisees. He could see into their hearts and he can read their heart like an open book. And friend, he can read your heart as well. He can read it like an open book. He knows your heart. He knows what makes you tick. There is no sense in trying to hide and pretend with this God. You can just dispense with all that foolishness. He sees, he knows all. The danger is that we don't take those spiritual blinders off. And to press home that point, Jesus is about to introduce us to someone who's going to personify that problem, Nicodemus, right? But that's for John chapter 3. That's for next time. For now, knowing their hearts, Jesus does what he so often does. He doesn't answer the question. He answers the question behind the question. So often what Jesus does. You want to talk about my authority? Yeah, I know you want to talk about that. That's all really a red herring. Let's talk about the real issue. Let's talk about the bigger issue. Let's talk about this temple. What do you really think it is, Jesus says? What do you think it's all about? Why is it even here? That's the real issue, says Jesus. Which is why he responds to them in verse 19. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, of course, the Jewish leaders thought he was talking about the physical temple. And they're incredulous, right? It took 46 years to build this Jesus. And just by the way, they still weren't done, right? It would be another few decades until the temple and the whole temple complex was entirely completed. And at this point, they are laughing at him. Like, we weren't sure if this guy was a nut job, but now, like, we're confident this guy's got to be a nut job. He's got to be crazy. Who can do in three days what's taken thousands of people years and decades to accomplish and yet John adds in verse 21 that he Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body it was the temple of his body that he spoke now the Jewish leaders didn't get this even Jesus's own disciples didn't connect the dots in the moment no it wasn't until verse 22 it wasn't until after Jesus' resurrection, that they understood that here Jesus wasn't talking about raising a building. He was talking about resurrecting a body. That word destroy, verse 19, destroy this temple. It can mean to demolish something by violence, which is exactly what happened to Jesus on the cross. It can also mean to do away with, to bring an end, to abolish as in the abolition of the temple and the entire sacrificial system. And friends, I think John, or I should say Jesus, uh, probably had both of those senses in mind. Right, The physical temple would pass into oblivion. Not only because it would be raised by the Romans, but because it was spiritually obsolete once Jesus had come. In Christ, what did we say last week? The old order of things has passed away, right? The old is gone, the new has come. That's what these chapters are helping us see, chapters 2 to 4. And of course, that is exactly what happened. About seven years after this thing was completed, so it was completed in like 63 AD, and it was started in around 19 BC. So they spent a lot of time on this temple. Well, about seven years later in AD 70, the Romans raised the whole thing, right? They brought it to the ground, all of its pomp and glory. And they officially ended the sacrificial system forever. And friends, that was God putting his exclamation point on what his son had said. Jesus' body 
offered up in sacrifice and raised in power is the new temple where God and humanity were creator and created now meet and dwell face to face. The physical temple was always itself intended to be a sign pointing to something greater, pointing to someone much greater. Jesus who would, remember John 1.14, what? He would tabernacle among us. So if you've come this morning and you're hoping to find God, no, you don't find God by embarking on some pilgrimage to some place. Whether it's Mecca or some sacred temple in Tokyo or Varanasi or St. Peter's or, or even this building, right? That's, that's not in a building, in a place where we find God. So if you'd like to meet God, if you'd like to understand God, if you'd like to know more about God, if you'd like to be in relationship with God, if you want to be accepted by this God, don't think sacred space or holy place. Think person. Think Jesus. It all begins and ends with this Jesus. I mean, Christian, it's the same for you, though. Right? We are not made more holy by visiting holy places. Now, sure, listen, like many of you, I would have loved to have gone to Israel on that Israel trip later this, this spring. Right? There's a, a, sadly, a war broke out. We can't go. Um, I've never been to Israel. That would be great. I would have loved to have gone to see the Wailing Wall, to walk where Jesus would have walked. But friends, we don't need to go to the holy place to become more holy. Not according to the Bible. We don't need to go to some spiritual site in order to become more spiritual. We don't become even more holy simply by coming here to church and to this building. It's why Puritans never called church buildings sanctuaries because there was nothing sacred about the space. What's sacred is not the building, it's the people. It's the people. And that was a biblical, biblical conviction they had. Friends, God doesn't dwell in houses made by human hands, Paul says in Acts 17. Right? It's not about the building, which is why you hear me use that word main hall. And you think, ah, Brad's such a curmudgeon, right? Isn't it a beautiful building? Yes, it's a wonderful building. There's nothing sacred about this place. We can go gather in a dump and it would be just as holy. I don't want to do that, but we could. What makes this building holy, again, is the people. It's not the paint. It's not some fresco on a wall. So, yes... Protestants can't point to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Neither can we point to Mecca like Muslims or temples, various holy sites like in Buddhism or Hinduism. But friends, we can point to something better. We can point to a person. For it's only in Jesus that we can truly meet with God and it's in Jesus that we can commune with God. Because Jesus is the true temple where God delivers us and dwells with us. So rest in his sacrifice, not in your religious service. And keep your eyes fixed on a person and not a place. You don't need sacred space to experience Jesus. You need his word and you need his people. Let's pray.